the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. I am your host, Nick DiGilio. I'm a podcaster, comedy writer, and performer, graduate of Second City, and a Saturday Night Live expert and historian. And each week, we will look back at everything SNL. The best, the worst, the good, the bad, the classic, the forgotten. We'll talk about full seasons and full casts, behind-the-scenes stories, episode sketches, SNL's historical significance, and much, much more. Sometimes I'll have guests, sometimes I won't, but with every episode, I will always prove that that tired cliche that you hear all the time, that show hasn't been funny in years, is absolutely wrong and untrue. And boy, do I have a guest today on episode 25. I like to actually, I can actually call my guests an old friend. Uh, I've known this person for, man, it's got to be over 15 years. He appeared on my old radio show many times. He, he's appeared on my other podcast, the Nick D podcast, a few times. He's actually making his debut here on That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years. He is a tremendous actor who has done stage, and he's a writer, and he's done television, he's done movies, he's done everything. He's worked with everybody on the planet. He loves Saturday Night Live, and in fact, he's worked with a ton of SNL ex-cast members and people behind the scenes and writers, and that's because he's worked almost literally with everybody on the planet. You've seen him in TV shows like The Reboot of One Day at a Time, Heroes, Seinfeld, Silicon Valley, The Goldbergs, Deadwood, Californication, and of course Glee and many more, and movies, so many movies, like Thelma and Louise, Mississippi Burning, Spaceballs, Sneakers, Single White Female, Freaky Friday, Memento, Hero, Wild Hogs, and of course he is Needle Nose Ned, the insurance salesman in Harold Ramis's brilliant Groundhog Day. Yes! Uh, to talk about his love of SNL and so many great stories about working with so many great SNL cast members from the past, I welcome, for his first time on That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast, the one, the only, the incredible Stephen Toblowski. And Stephen, welcome uh, to That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my thrill, thrill to be here, Nick. This, this touches on a nerve, as they say. Yeah, I thought it would. Now, you know, as I said in, in the introduction, that you have uh, made approximately, you've worked in approximately 16,000 projects. About um, 16, yeah. 15,900, <laughs> 15, but, you know. <laughs> right, I gave you a little too many, but that's okay. Too many, but. <laughs> um, and I knew at some point, you know, besides Groundhog Day, um, that you have had to have crossed paths with, you know, the years that you've been in the business and, and the 48 seasons that SNL has been around, I knew that at some point paths had to be crossed and you had to have worked with many folks who uh, were in the world of, of Saturday Night Live. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, looking yeah. For, I'm looking forward to it. Now, the obvious, as I mentioned already, the obvious one, we'll get to that a little bit later because we've heard all a bunch of great stories about Groundhog Day over the years. Um, you know, obviously you worked with uh, Brian Doyle and Bill Murray in that. 
and Chris Elliott. So you got three knocked out in one project. Yes, yes. Um, and, so, and Robin Duke was, uh, you know, she was the waitress oh, in there, too. That's right, Robin Duke. That's So yes, Robin, Robin's Duke. number four, but I didn't have any scenes with Robin. But right. I did have scenes with all, with the other three, yeah. Great. Okay, cool. So we've got, and we've heard a lot of those stories and stuff. But before we get to the extensive list, and we were before we started, we hit the record button here. Uh, it's insane the amount of people that you've worked with. And I'm not, I don't know what... Now, you know, when I, when I sent you the email and I invited you back on the podcast to talk about SNL, you sent me an email back and said, okay, I just looked up the list and, and I'm surprised at just how many I worked with. And then ellipses, <laughs> maybe I'm not. <laughs> Which makes sense. Uh, do, do you ever go back and look at some of your credits and go, man, I forgot I worked with all of these people? Yeah, I, I, I do that well, because... I forget a lot of the shows I'm in and I run into people all the time and said, Oh my gosh, you know, you were in this. I go, I was. And then I have to go on IMDb. And I go, Oh my gosh. And then it all comes back to me in shades of mediocrity, right? <laughs> emptiness and harmony. I, the, the, the thing is, you know, I was listening to your introduction. The thing about working with tons of uh, SNL people is there is no greater audition on earth than somebody having done a year or two on on saturday night live that producers are going to want them in the show just for the name value of having those people there yeah yeah it's true it's true and it's a whole and 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 it's a whole different you know mindset and working environment i'm one of the things that i talk about on this podcast constantly and and i've had cast members you know on the show and past cast members on the show uh, uh before and that week that you work and you know the behind the scenes story they walk in on monday they got nothing they have to do 90 minutes of live tv on saturday yeah and and you know you 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 know you've done theater for many years i mean your background is theater you know how crazy that is to walk in to a building and have nothing how how do you how, how do you think that must be for 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 six days you have nothing you you have to do this thing I think it takes a certain kind of person. When, when The only time I ever did something live, live, was live in front of a studio audience right. with the Norman Lear show, and I did the Jeffersons. Right. And, and I played the neighbor on the Jeffersons. And uh, Will Ferrell from Saturday Night Live uh, was on that show. Uh, he, he was in the Jeffersons as well. Except Will didn't show up until the day we shot it. Wow. So, and now this is live in front of tens of millions yeah. of people. Yeah. We we have equipment. They had a soundstage on Sony to record the show, and they had the next soundstage for all the equipment that it took to do a live broadcast. And uh, Jim Burroughs was our director. And so I was brought into the group a little bit late, but I had a week. I I had about five days to rehearse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we would do is half of the day we would rehearse the Jeffersons, half of the day we would rehearse uh, uh, All in the Family. Right. So you had two different casts, and we had a script. We, we, we had a script from the start, so we knew what we had to learn. But when we were doing the Jeffersons, we got to Will Farrell, who had a big part in the Jeffersons. Will wasn't there. He was busy doing something else. And so they just had a stand-in, walk through his part. Oh, man. So we would try to remember our lines and secure our blocking. And, and Jim was, was setting up the cameras and trying to see what was going to be seen and fixing it so it was exact. 
And Will shows up, Will Ferrell shows up probably, I want to say like, oh, like one in the afternoon on the day we were going to shoot live. Oh, man. So he rehearsed with us once, knew everything, knew all the lines. Amazing. Uh, he had learned it, and he was cool as a cucumber and flawless on the performance in front of the audience and played the audience beautifully. Yeah. So I think it takes a certain kind of... Uh, yeah. You, you know, they... The, we we had talked before here about my heart surgery mm -hmm. and and uh my doctor said it takes a certain kind of personality to be a heart surgeon they're different from regular doctors and they're different from regular surgeons there's a certain character about them mm -hmm. i would say the same thing yeah about yeah. the saturday night live folks yeah there is a certain thing in that character to where they are impervious to a certain kind of stress yeah yeah and he was on that show for several years and uh and obviously yeah. became one of the most successful and he was one of the best best uh, best cast members uh during yes. his stretch yes. it was great that's amazing that's amazing well first of all before we get to the stories that you have of working with like yeah. do dozens of cast members uh from snl SNL itself uh, debuted yes. in October of 1975. I was 10, and I watched the very first episode, and I've never missed an episode. Um, I'm obsessed with it, which is why I have a podcast dedicated to it. And that first night when George Carlin was the host in October of 1975, I've watched it through its ups and downs, through its cast members, when Lauren was gone and Gene Demanian took over and when Dick Ebersol took over and everybody... All of these years, for 48 years, I've been watching it. And I just want to know, from your perspective, do you remember when it hit the airwaves? Oh, yes. Okay. It was like a nuclear bomb okay. in Dallas, Texas, where like the most out there thing was Granny's Dinner Theater. <laughs> so <laughs> I, was, I was, what, 23? I was born in 51, so I was about 23, 24 years old right. in Dallas. I was working as an actor in Dallas at this time. And uh, I remember I saw that first show at Mark Hardwick's house. Uh, we all had the little black and white TVs. Yeah. And looking back on it, there was something. First of all, it, it, shook, it shook us like a nuclear explosion. One thing was it was on so late. Yeah. Another thing, it was live. So the mistakes and everything would be there. And, and, and we didn't quite know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And the comedy on it was different from anything quite from what we had seen. And if... I don't know if this is an overstatement. So you kick me if this is an overstatement. Have okay. have you have you been onto the whole thing about the pods of genius that exist throughout history? I've no, I've not. No, I've not. So uh, you, you know, you've got the fact that Mozart gave piano lessons to Beethoven when okay. he was fourteen, and it's in Mozart's diary that you will hear from this young Ludwig. Beethoven in the future, I promise you, mm -hmm. from the lessons. Uh, and Mozart got lessons from Haydn. And Chopin talks about when he saw Beethoven performing when he was 10, when Chopin was 10. These 
this whole group and Schubert, all these musicians were all in the same little cluster of place. And we don't realize this small seed exploded and became something that was worldwide. And mm -hmm. we have the same pot of genius that happened over, over nuclear energy and, and nuclear power with Einstein and Oppenheimer. And th that pod of geniuses in one locale right. that exploded and changed the way we look at the world. Uh, and I think, I'm not overstating it, at least I don't feel that way, that Saturday Night Live starting at that point in time, and there are many reasons why that pod of genius existed. Not only those, the concept of the show, the execution of the show, and that particular group of talent began this pod of genius that changed comedy and the way we perceive comedy for a long time. And at least now we're still in the kind of penumbra of the of what Saturday Night Live did. And I, I have here in my hand this book by Sigmund Freud. You know, did we discuss this, Nick, that Sigmund Freud wrote a book on comedy? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, I, you know, I think we have in the past, but. Uh... Jokes and the relation to the unconscious. Right. So Sigmund Freud said the essence of comedy is making the meaningful meaningless or making the meaningless meaningful. And if I take a look at what Saturday Night Live focuses on in terms of comedy at the beginning, and we were not used to seeing this at that time, it was making, always seemed to be making the meaningful meaningless, whether it was Chevy Chase coming out as the handsome leading man with a, a beginning statement and then f tripping and falling and collapsing somewhere. Mm. He was always falling down. That was his big deal. To uh, Belushi, to John Belushi, the same thing that was happening at the time of Saturday Night Live was the fact that movie going was changing in America at the time. And we had art theaters yeah, that yeah. now were showing foreign films. Yeah. So for the first time in college, we were seeing films like from Kurosawa of The Seven Samurai. Mm -hmm. So for the first time in our lives, we were watching Tashura Mifune tearing up these people with samurai sports. Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, you have Belushi coming here with his, uh, whether it be samurai delicatessen or samurai, it was something we had just experienced in popular culture elsewhere as meaningful, foreign films, meaningful, Kurosawa, meaningful, Seven Samurai meaningful, to Belushi taking it and making it meaningless. Mm. And so all of the samurai stuff that he did was an example of Sigmund Freud's theory of comedy. And we didn't know what the hell samurais were really at that time in history, but we knew from Belushi it was associated with comedy. Right, right. It's true. It's true. I'm going to play a little bit. Are you ready oh, for this? Yep, 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 yep. I'm going to play a little bit. This is from Samurai Hotel. Um, oh, God. This is actually the first time that he ever did the Samurai character on SNL. It was, uh, uh, this will be with Chevy Chase. Oh, and, God. And uh, eventually, I don't have, I don't have, I didn't uh, cut the audio all the way up, but eventually Richard Pryor was the host that night. He joins as the Black Samurai uh, <laughs> a little bit later on. 
But here's a, here's a quick bit of what you were talking about. And some of this is visual, so you won't be able to actually picture it. But this is a little bit of what you were just talking about um, from uh, Blue Perhaps you get a room with, uh, you know what I'd like? A room overlooking the park. Are the rates high for that kind of thing? Whoosh, yeah, that. 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 You have room service? Joy? Room service. Whoosh, yeah, that. That's fine. Yeah, that. Uh, what's your checkout time? Whoosh, yeah, that. Whoosh, yeah, that. Whoosh, yeah, that. So that's 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 you, a little you bit get it. it. Yeah. So yeah. not only not only do you have the example of the meaningful becoming meaningless, the samurai film that we were recently introduced in film history from Toshiro yeah. Mifune yeah. and, and, and how amazing the Kira Kurosawa films were. You have that, but you also have something Harold Ramis talked to me about the first day we were shooting Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. When I came up to Harold Ramis and I said, am I too big? Am I being too broad as Ned, as Ned Ryerson? And that's when Harold Ramis says, in any comic skit, you have to have one person being the world and the other person being the aberrant force in the world. Then you have comedy. He says the problem people have is when you feel both people feel like they have to be funny. You see in the Samurai uh, Hotel here, was that, you said Chevy Chase? Yeah, that's Chevy Chase. Yeah. So you have Chevy Chase. You see him playing the straight man. He's the straight guy in the world, so Belushi could be insane. Mm -hmm. And the audience is laughing just because it is the Freud thing of making the meaningful meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, what a wonderful note from from Ramis. Boy, you, it was it, I mean, you know, he's one of my comedy heroes. You know, oh. you know this, Stephen. I mean, he was yeah. one of my favorite one of my favorite humans on the planet and one of and a, and a guy that really inspired me uh, big time. Now, when when it started, I was uh, obviously I was I was 10. You were, you know, in your 20s. Um, but you were a performer, you were an actor. Did the community in Dallas, the acting community in Dallas, was this something like, oh my God, you've seen this? And was it was it a topic of conversation? Did you guys suddenly start watching it every Saturday night? Was it that kind yes, of thing? Yes, it was the deal. Yeah. Uh, also at that time, besides that being the deal, was the deal was people started to smoke marijuana. Yes. yes. You know, it was a new thing then in Dallas in the early and mid 70s that people would smoke marijuana. So it was a custom. We would have Saturday night live uh, parties Mm -hmm. at various people's homes. We'd sit down and they would pass a joint around. Now, I did not touch the stuff at the time, did not touch it. But that was another new thing that broke through in our culture at that time. Yeah. and we had, remember, we had just finished the Vietnam War. Right. So as a country, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Right. We, you know, we didn't quite know what that fight was about. And people were running to Canada. There was a lot of confusion at the time. So we would watch that Saturday Night Live as these are the Hepcats telling right. us what's true. 
Yeah. And we were glued to that set at night and the joint would go around me. I would drink, I would drink probably a Budweiser or a Miller. I believe yeah. I liked Miller at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was, that was our Saturday nights. It's it. I'm not surprised by that. It's interesting too, because you know, like, uh, uh, I don't think a lot of people who weren't around at that time or don't remember it at that time there, the, when Saturday night live, uh, why it was so revolutionary, and that's what we're talking about here. It was an absolutely revolutionary new thing. And for all the reasons that you're saying, that the, the drug culture became part of it, uh, you know, the, the whole taking the meaningless and, and taking, making it meaningful and vice versa, all the stuff that you've mentioned. But on top of that, the only kind of comedy that we had at that time that was even remotely like that were variety shows. Were like, I mean, Carol Burnett was the closest that you would get, and yet that was just not the same. Like the energy was different. The style was different. And we had like corny variety shows, and then suddenly they were they were younger, they were hipper, they weren't as clean, you know what I mean? And they were doing drug humor, and it just seemed like, you know, my my mom and dad watched Carol Burnett. I'm gonna watch this, you yeah, know what I mean? We remember we had Ed Sullivan too. I had Sullivan, yes, Sunday, absolutely, yeah. Where where we would have one stand up comic. It could have been a great comic like Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, you, you know, you could have had a great comic on, but they were all like Vegas comics and they were doing social commentary right. or, or, you know, family. What do you think about Thanksgiving? You know, that kind of stuff. Right. What, what Saturday Night Live did was took kind of the idea that at the, that time, our country, at least from somebody in my early 20s, we were very confused. We were very confused coming out of Vietnam. We didn't know where we were really going in the world, but we know we didn't trust the grownups anymore. Right. And Watergate. We knew we Watergate, didn't trust Water, them. Watergate had yes. happened too. Yeah. Watergate. Was Watergate. Yeah, yeah. We didn't trust them. And so yeah. you had lots of revolutionary films at the time, yeah. a kind of, a kind of anti-hero films at the time. And we viewed those Saturday Night Live actors and actresses as kind of revolutionaries in yeah. their own way. Yeah. We believed them because they didn't, by calling themselves the not ready for prime time players, we dug it because we thought they don't even take themselves seriously. They, because at that time, the country, everything in the country was really about taking everything so damn seriously. And here these people were coming on at midnight yeah. or whenever they came on and whenever they started this live show in New York, they came on and they were a unit, but none of them were taking themselves seriously. They're falling all over the place, laugh, whatever, whatever happened. And right. so we appreciated their courage and we appreciated the fact that they came at us with no answers. Yeah. Yeah. And the timing was exquisite on that. I mean, Lauren Michaels, uh, you know, the idea for this and everything just came at the perfect time. Like it was it was the perfect time in America for a show like this. Yeah. Uh, you know, to take that kind of risk to do something and different. It was it was lucky, too. And this is also something that creates great ideas. And that is the deficit. A, a, a deficit has to exist in a society or something for a new thing to to appear. And. We, gosh, I, I want to say that 
we only had three channels, right? Yeah. Of television at that time, and three, we three also ne- had three three networks and a couple of UHF channels. Three three networks and Channel Eleven, which showed the Three yeah. Stooges. Yeah. yeah. You know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We we had this very small kind of. We we did not really have cable TV yet. No. Nope. When, when this happened, we didn't have cable TV, and then we had the TV guide. Like now. A TV guide is pointless because we only have 3,000 channels with nothing on. (laughs) You know, I I looked at the guide on my TV and the number of shows that are about busting belly fat. You know, (laughs) there are more shows on TV at any time now about busting belly fat than we had in the 70s that were real networks that showed things. Yeah. So... People plan their lives around the TV guide, mm-hmm. and they plan their lives around Saturday Night Live. Yeah, as as the culture developed now, with with one of the biggest things that would do uh, Saturday Night Live in, and would do any late night television in, like the Tonight Show, used to be the destination to go to too. Mm-hmm. Is the internet? There was no internet, Nick. Right. Right. So what happens nowadays is people don't watch late night TV that much. They wait the next day and see what yep. the best skits were on the internet. Yep. yep. I just t- I just had Michael Longfellow who uh, just spent his first season as a cast member. Uh, I just had him on uh, like three episodes ago, and we talked mm-hmm. about how he because he's young. He's a kid. He's twenty nine. So he's young, mm-hmm. and um, and I was asking him, you know, what are, what are your first memories of SNL? And it goes back to like the Andy Samberg Lonely Island videos that they did, like Dick in a Box and all those other things, and how he would watch it the next day. And people in their 20s and early 30s are in that camp where it was like, yeah, I never really was home at night, but now I could watch <laughs> YouTube or I could go on NBC and I could watch every sketch the next day. And that's how a lot of people watch it. I mean, still people still do watch it at night, you know, when it's when it's live. Yeah. But uh, the majority of people are like, yeah, I'm going to catch up on all because every sketch is available uh, now. Like literally an hour when the show is over, if you go online, if you go, if you if you scroll through social media or you go on the Internet, you can get every single sketch. If the show's over at midnight by 1 a.m., every sketch is available. And it was, yes. I mean, that's unbelievable. It was never like that for years, you know. So the scarcity in the 1970s, the scarcity of being able to see this kind of entertainment. Yeah. It was rare. It was like seeing a diamond. And you had to be up on Saturday night, stay yep. up late yep. to watch it. And if yep. you didn't, you were not part of the club. You That's missed true. it. That's true. You missed it. I, and I, you know, my parents were very lenient, uh, to say the least. I'm an only child, so they let me kind of do anything I wanted. And, <laughs> and I think I've told you this before. My father used to take me, when I grew up, I grew up in the Grindhouse Theaters in, down, in the Loop, Chicago. And uh, he would take me to any movie. I saw R-rated movies. In a very, my dad, here, I'll, give you, I'll sum it up really quick for you, Stephen. My dad took me to see The Exorcist in the theater when I was eight. Oh, so, God. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so that maybe explains a little bit about my personality right now. Oh, but, God. So watching Saturday Night Live at 10, people are like, oh, my God, that's unbelievable. I'm like, no, not really. Not in my household, it wasn't. But right around the same time, though, I, I do want to mention this because, like, these were the, the – because my comedic sensibility was formed by Saturday Night Live. And, you know, and as you know, Stephen, I went on to do a lot of theater – and comedy, yes. original comedy theater and stuff like that. And I, I studied at Second City and all that stuff. And it's because of SNL, but right around the same time, and this was revolutionary for me, it changed my life as a young kid. 
I, I would not only discovered SNL, but right around the same time I discovered Python and everything changed. Like when I saw, when those two things combined in my 11, 12 year old mind, my mind was blown by SNL and then followed closely by Python. My God. I mean, you know. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So. Yeah. Monty Python, Monty Python uh, took it a step further. Yeah. In, in terms of, because reality was not that important for Monty Python. Even <laughs> the straight people on Monty Python were lunatics. Right. You're yeah. right. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was life-changing for me. Now, over the years, as the years went on, did you have favorite uh, performers uh, as you watched? I mean, yeah. obviously, that, you know, the first cast, the first cast of Not Ready for Primetime Players are legendary, and everybody yeah. remembers them, and they'll always be you know, the best remembered and most important and revolutionary of all cast members over the years, as you were watching it, as time went on and you became, you know, obviously a very successful actor and you worked a lot, you would catch it here and there. Were there any performers over the years of watching SNL that stood out for you and anything that stood out? Yeah. I, I think because, because I began working more and more and more, I was able to watch TV less and less and less. And I think there's an old axiom that like, if you make TV, you don't end up watching TV. Wow, right, right. So right. There, there were chunks of time when I didn't see Saturday Night Live at all, big chunks. But one thing that, that always killed me and Annie, uh, my wife, you know, we love something about the genius. There, there, was, there were so many geniuses on that show. Mm -hmm. That it kept being, whether it was Mike Myers or Dana Carvey or whatever. Dana Carvey, I would, I would offer that a lot of people, whereas you had uh, Dan Aykroyd being Jimmy Carter, I remember, and everybody was thrilled over that. You had uh, Phil, right, who, who did Reagan. Uh, and he also did Clinton. Oh, Phil Hartman also did Clinton. Phil Hartman did did Clinton. Yeah. He had Chevy Chase doing uh, uh, Ford. Yeah, Ford because yeah. he would oh, just fall down. He would fall down. You know, he, he did, it was not. It wasn't even. He didn't even try to do an impression. No, <laughs> he just fell down because Ford always right. kept up against. Exactly. And, <laughs> and and you could always say that for the most part, uh, the impressions were. What depre what impressions usually are is people exaggerate right. the worst or lowest figure of this person right. to make a kind of commentary on him or whatever that was, except for Dana Carvey. Mm -hmm. And that is Dana Carvey took what by any stretch was uh first of all, his all of his characterizations for me, whether it was the church lady or whatever, was just to the moon, just yeah. brilliant. Mm -hmm. But he made a star for, from where I sat of uh, George H.W. Bush, yeah. right? When he did his George Bush, because George Bush was not uh, a president that really stood out for any reason at all. Mm -hmm. you, you know, he was kind of just gray, except, except for Dana Carvey's creation of it. And Annie used to say that Dana Carvey is going to make George H.W. Bush the most popular president <laughs> in history because it was glorious. 
his impersonation of yeah. him was amazing. So that was one of our favorites. Well, Annie and I. We, we, let me let me play a little bit. I, I, oh I, uh, go, God, I have great. a little bit. I have a little bit. This is. Uh, I, I want to just say that this was this was in fe- uh, February of ninety one. So it was right at the beginning of the airstrikes of the first Gulf War. Uh huh. Okay, so here's a little bit of Dana Carvey doing George Bush. And I pulled this one because it has one of my favorite exchanges. And it's not an exchange because it's just him. But it has one of my favorite moments that he does. So here's Dana Carvey as George Bush back in 1991 on SNL. Good evening. Happy holidays to y'all. Once again, it's that festive season. Tonight, our Jewish friends observe the fifth night of Hanukkah. The celebration of a military victory won centuries ago in a part of the world where today 400,000 brave Americans await my order to annihilate Iraq. <laughs> and none of us want war in that whole area out over there. But as Commander-in-Chief, I am ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full-scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. <laughs> Probably won't, but then again, I might. <laughs> now, if we do, if we do go to war, I can assure you it will not be another Vietnam, because we have learned well the simple lesson of Vietnam: stay out of Vietnam. <laughs> So that's the, the that's my favorite. <laughs> Stay oh. out of Vietnam. It's my favorite. And the physical stuff that we're missing, obviously, is like he's doing a lot of hand gestures and he would do the the thing. And um, yeah, I mean, his Bush was it was right on the money, but it was also tweaked enough. And when Bush came on SNL and said, "I don't say Nat Gandet," I do that. I mean, and that and that you know that little conversation between Dana Carvey and George Bush was just it was classic stuff. And that was one of my favorite moments that he did as bush it was it was divine comic genius it was it was something that was so simple if you had the talent to do it which dana carvey did was to take that and elevate this president that again was not really outstanding in the history books nothing about him stood out but people loved Dana Carvey's impression so much that I th- I think it drew a lot of attention to George H W Bush. It was amazing. Yeah, it's funny though. You mentioned like impressions and things like that and what people remember. I you know like like for that a lot of people who would ever, like nobody ever really did except for Dana Carvey. Nobody did a George H W Bush impression no. except for him. And whenever anybody would do an impression, it was Dana Carvey's impression that they were doing. And that's a thing that happened a lot on SNL. Like, for instance, when people do impressions of Harry Carey, and I'm from Chicago, so a lot of people do impressions of Harry Carey, they end up doing Will Ferrell's Harry Carey. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, everybody. And it sounds like Will Ferrell doing, and and again, Will Ferrell's, you know, speaking of Bush, his son, when Will Ferrell did George W. Bush, like he did a one-man show on Broadway. Uh, uh, doing that, but yet, and it was exaggerated, you know. Um, and that's part of that's that's part of what people are doing. And then instead of doing an actual impression, people actually started doing impressions of the SNL cast version of those mm-hmm. people. Yes, so it's, yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, I not, yeah. I, I just to mention this, uh, you had the Im- impersonations that always seemed to be a part of uh, SNL. Yeah, uh, Saturday Night Live. But then you had the creation of characters 
that didn't exist. And I guess that was like, you know, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey that became like the two rock and rollers. Yeah, the uh, Wayne's World guys, Wayne and Garth. The Wayne's World guy, you know, that became Wayne's World because it captured kind of the essence of the age. Yep. Uh, Something about the age where everybody at one point thought they could be actors, and then at another point everybody thought they could be rock and rollers. And they captured that that invisible, what is it called, a zeitgeist? They captured that spirit of the country and did it. One, One of my favorite... One of my favorite uh, performers always was uh, Chris Farley. Yeah. You know, absolutely genius. And and nobody was able to use their body as well as Chris Farley. I still remember him with... as Matt doing Foley? the Chippendale. Oh, yeah, the, the Chippendales Chippendale. with, with Patrick Swayze. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Chip yeah. with Patrick Swayze uh, and doing the dance and... And the applause, I remember when Chris Farley did that dance, the applause in the audience, Mm -hmm. the live audience, was thunderous and kept going. And you could see that it even surprised Chris and Patrick Swayze. They were surprised because the audience was overwhelmed by how great his his physical ability was even being so, so heavy. Yeah, yeah. But his characters... Uh, a no, one, I remember the self-help guy, yeah, the self-help guy who lives what who lives in his car or he something lives in a like van, that. A, a van down by the river. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like um, and that's that Matt time. Foley, which by the way was created uh, right here in Chicago. That was created by him and Bob Odenkirk. Um, oh my God! They created that on the main stage at Second City in this city uh, in the late '80s, and uh, oh. and 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 that's where it came back from, and that's where he debuted it on. Uh, on uh, SNL in the uh, in the early nineties, that, uh, that is that um, I just remember at that period in history, that kind of thing. The self help guy who's been seeing the bad side of life coming back was big everywhere. Yeah. Well, let that me play a quick one more one more clip. We'll play and then, okay, and then I want to okay. I want to get to stories about who you've worked with because okay that's, okay. But I will it. I'm going to play a little bit of Matt Foley. So this is obviously okay. the legendary. And the first time they did it, Christina Applegate was the host and. And, and and David Spade and Christina Applegate cannot keep keep a straight face. That's one of the things. And everybody on the stage, everybody. And here's here's what, what I, I've I've always said. My favorite cast member in the history of SNL, for my money, was the glue. Was the best cast member is Phil Hartman. I think he is the best cast member. Ever. Genius. Um, I, I remember when he died, oh. I was driving over the hill and I had to pull off to the side of the road. Yeah. I was so filled with grief. G- genius. He was amazing in everything he did, no matter what's, what part of the sketch. If he had a small part, if he had a big part, if he didn't carry the sketch, he was always, always good. Always good. And by the way, in this sketch, I'm going to play a little bit of Matt Foley's first time on SNL, Van Down by the River, the whole thing. He's the only one that doesn't break because he's Phil Hartman. <laughs> he's Phil Hartman. <laughs> he's Phil Hartman. All right, here's a quick uh, Matt Foley. From what I've heard, you're using your paper not for writing, but for rolling doobies. You're gonna be doing a lot of doobie rolling when you're living in a van down by the river. (laughs) Young lady, what do you wanna do with your life? I wanna live in a van down by the river. Well, you'll have plenty of time to live in a van down by the river when you're living in a van down by the river. 
So that's that's. Uh, and and, I, and I've seen interviews with Christine Applegate who said I, I had to get that line out. Like I want to live in a van down by the river, and it, it took everything in her might to not crack up to get that line out. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you know this or not, uh, uh, Stephen, but in that sketch, um, he told the crew, the 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 guys who who built the set, he without telling the rest of the people on stage with him. Um, he, he said, can you bring in a, a breakaway coffee table? Because I'm going to fall through it without telling anybody. So when he j- falls and falls through the coffee table, nobody knew that was going to happen. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they put a breakaway coffee table on there that Farley went through, and nobody on stage, Lauren didn't know, nobody knew. So, so bold. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. So, um, so, okay, so over the years you watched it, and obviously because you worked a lot, you didn't get to see it a lot. Now, but you have worked with an astonishing amount yeah. of cast or ex-cast members. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, like 24 I have here. Let me, I, I won't go down the list, but um, yeah. just give me some stories about cast members from Saturday Night Live that you've worked with, what you worked with them on, and if you have stories about them. And I have the list here. If I want to throw a couple at you, I will. But give me a couple of quick ones of people that you worked with, people that we love from SNL. Let, let's see. Uh, God, so many people here. Yeah, I, know. Um, <laughs> I think, um, God, so. Okay, here's. Um, Here's one story. I, I, one of the greatest people on uh, Saturday Night Live is not really on your list because he was always a host and I think he was a writer, and that's Buck Henry. Oh, one of the legends. Yeah. Buck Henry. Bucky yeah. Boo. Yeah. I worked with Buck Henry for over a year on Broadway in Mornings at 7, and then we moved the show. It was successful, but most of the people lived in L.A. We wanted to come back. So we wanted to do the show at the Amundsen, which, like the Broadway house, we were at the Lyceum, which is about, you know, 2,000, 2,200 people, something like that, mm-hmm. at the Lyceum. Mm-hmm. And the Amundsen is also a huge house, a, a huge house. I want to say, again, 2,000 people at least. So... Um, we were we had moved from Broadway. We were very successful, fourteen uh, Tony nominations. We we moved the show to the Amundsen, and Buck was always a bad boy. Mm. He was always forever a bad boy. On you never on stage, you could not trust what he would do. He would do bad things all the time. <laughs> so. Uh, for example, just a little example on his birthday, uh, Julie Haggerty was my girlfriend in that show. Made him a, we made him a cake and we put a little uh, figure on top of the cake that looked like Buck, it, his character in the play. And so during, we didn't know this, Buck put the little man in his pocket. He was wearing the suit and when he crossed his arms, he could make the head of the little man come up out of his shirt pocket and look at you. So he, we would be on stage doing serious theater, man. We were yeah. doing theater, yeah. and uh, Buck would come and start saying his line, and upstage, you know, you'd see him cross those arms, and while he's doing his speech, he's moving that, and the little head is starting to come up out of his pocket, and we are trying not to laugh. One of the worst things that happened, most amazing thing, on stage ever. Yeah. We're, we're, we're at the Amundsen now. 
and Julie and I come on about 18 minutes into the show, and we're hearing the audience very little, very little, but we're hearing our actors on stage like messing up, messing up lines and doing stuff. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Frances Sternhagen came off stage, she played the mother on it, yeah. and she goes, there's Arabs, there's Arabs. And, and I'm going like, huh, what? What's going on? So she runs back on stage, and again, people are messing up lines, and someone else comes off stage, out there, out there, Arabs, Arabs. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, okay, so the big deal, they're Arabs. Okay, what's the big deal? So Julie Haggerty and I make our entrance at about 18 minutes, we come out, and the entire theater is empty. <laughs> the 2,200 seats are empty except for the first two rows, and there are Arab sheiks, like Bedouins, with huge white robes and carrying staffs and everything. So these Arabs came, these like 40 Arabs came and bought out the whole theater. You know, they bought out the whole yeah. theater. And so the only thing we're playing to is these like 50 Arabs on the front seat, on, on the front rows. and. Right. None of us could get our lines out. So Buck Henry comes out and sees it, and he starts to restage what we're doing. So while we're doing a scene, Buck would walk in front of us while we're doing our speeches and then turn back to us to say his line. So his back's to the audience, and he's facing us. And at the end of his line, he would mouth the words, Arabs, they're (laughs) Arabs out there. And he would gesture with his thumb and we would all start laughing and then he'd walk back as if nothing were going on. And he absolutely decimated us for that performance with with the Arabs. He was such a bad boy. Yeah. Buck Henry. And you called him Bucky Boo? Bucky Boo is what we called him. Bucky Boo was (laughs) uh, so many, you know, so many of the actors I worked with, I was so impressed with just how talented they were. Mm-hmm. A lot of them I worked with on the Goldbergs. Yes, uh, you work with Anna Gasteyer on the Goldbergs. Uh, Anna, Ga- yeah, boy, so many uh, with, uh, boy, on the Goldbergs, I got so many. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall on the Goldbergs, Anna Gasteyer on the Goldbergs. Uh, I yeah. had no idea, for example, Christine Ebersol could sing. Uh, I worked with her in the marriage of Bette and Boo here in Los Angeles on stage. Yeah. And I went back to do a Law and Order in New York and ran into Christine, and she said, why don't you come see me sing? I'm over at the Carlisle. So I ran over there, and she is the greatest singer on earth. Um, And and it was just the people who were in the cast, the cast of Saturday Night Live. This is why you end up acting with so many of them. Well, let me ask you this. You just recently were on a panel, or you did a a show with Molly Shannon, who... (sighs) Um, regular listeners of this podcast know she's my favorite um, female cast member ever. I just adore her, and I love everything that she does. And what was what was she like? Tell me a little bit about working with Molly. Shannon. It was uh, so we were doing a thing at the Coronet Theater, a comedy thing where these great writers came and they would read bits of their new work to us, and we were a panel like America's Got Talent. And uh, I was playing the Simon character. Oh, okay. And, and Molly <laughs> Shannon was was playing, you know, the nice actress. So we were all there, and we were just hearing these for the first time and giving our comments to them, our criticisms to it. Yeah. And Molly, it, that was my first introduction to Molly, is 
the greatest girl, just an angel. She is uh, one of these people that makes everybody better. She's one of these people that makes anything, if there's any potential trouble, she makes it all kind of go away with her skill and her pleasantness. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is, she's one of my little local heroes. Whenever I see Molly, it, it just brightens my heart. She's, she's a champion. Yeah, she's I a champion her. in anything she does. I love her. I, I got to. I, I was just, lucky enough to have met her a couple of times, and she's just lovely. All right, I'm going to throw some names at you. You give me okay. like a quick uh, Jay Farrow yep. on White Famous. Jay Farrow. Uh, it was hysterical working with him on White Famous. He had no idea that I was going to be somewhat of a racist on the show, mm-hmm. and I, I was playing stew bags from Californication. So we oh, right. had a right. great time. Great time. <laughs> He's a he's a great guy. Chevy Chase. You worked with him uh, a couple times with with him and uh, you worked with John Carpenter uh, with uh, Invisible Man, and you worked with him on Community as well. Uh, In Community, Chevy yeah. Chase was one of the first people I met after my heart surgery. Mm. So that was the Community I that they did for me after my heart surgery, and Chevy came in and heard about it, and gave me a gentle but big hug, uh. Uh, and heard about it and and he wasn't working that day but he came by to wish me well oh that's nice that's yes. nice so you work with him a couple of times sarah silverman uh sarah little... silverman yeah let me tell you sarah silverman i've worked with her a couple of times on peep world and on the sarah silverman show sarah silverman goes down in my book as someone who encouraged me greatly with my stories with with whatever and if you go to my first book Dangerous Animals Club, yep. and yep. you go back to the acknowledgments at the back, you see one of the first acknowledgments is to Sarah Silverman, because she was one of the first people to give me encouragement that she liked my stories. Mm. She was one of the first people to read that book. She was one of the first people to give me comments and encourage me and to goad me on. Oh, and man. so she was a great cheerleader in my life, and I appreciate her greatly. Great to hear. Julia Louis dreyfus <sighs> <laughs> she is the boss. Yes. You know, I, I, I worked on uh, New Old Christine with her, yeah. and it was one of those situations where we could not keep from laughing. Yeah. And it again, she's one of these women who is the boss of the show, and she runs it, and she's a great boss. And also, I work with her on Seinfeld. Right. So, so you know, she <clears throat> I've been with her for that— you, you see those years and you see how sometimes TV makes people hard and sometimes it just makes people strong. And Julia's yeah. one of those people that's incredibly strong. It's incredible to watch her uh, arc. You know, like when she started on SNL, she was really underutilized on SNL. And like they asked her, I remember, I guess it was David Letterman who asked her, what was, uh, what was it like? What did you do when you worked on SNL? And she said, well, I would say stuff like, here you go, Mr. Gumby. And then I'd leave the stage because she was there, you know, <laughs> basically doing anything that Eddie Murphy wanted. You know what I mean? yes. And then, you know, to move on to, 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 to start out and break into Seinfeld and become such a, such an iconic character on a show that where she wasn't originally written into that show, as you know, yeah. and then to go from new adventures and then to veep and everything that she's doing now, it's, it's, it's amazing to watch her career and how she's become a, she's a juggernaut, a comedy, man. I mean, great, great talent, great talent. Yeah. Jim Belushi. He worked on according to Jim, Jim Belushi. Now we have Chevy chase, who was the man who was there after my heart surgery. Yeah. So Jim Belushi was the guy, <laughs> As I'm walking to the set of The Defenders to work with Jim, 
was the first time I felt a little something in my chest. Oh. And right after that day, and it's not Jim's fault, I went into the doctor <laughs> and <laughs> then I'm on to heart surgery. And uh, so, so Jim was at one end, <laughs> one end of my heart surgery. Right. And Chevy, and was, on Chevy the other was at the okay. other end. So we're blaming Jim Belushi for the heart. Yeah, we're blaming heart. Jim well, for that. It's all, it's all Belushi's fault. It's all yes. Jim Belushi's fault. Uh, Michael McKeon. We, we uh, boy, we worked on... Uh, the, what, we were radio, radio land murders, radio land murders in South Carolina. Yeah. This was the incredible. First of all, everybody was lining up to get a tattoo. Uh, <laughs> they had they somebody brought a tattoo artist onto the set, and Michael <laughs> always wanted to get some sort of tattoo, like a little T or something on his shoulder. I'm going, I'm going like, hey man, I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, you know when I when I come to a party, I want a party, man. I right. don't want to get a tattoo. But right. Michael got this little tattoo at that time. We, um, he is one of these guys that can be a leading man. He could he could be in he could be in the most serious drama you want to do, and and he he also can be hysterical. We. That was a crazy, crazy show because George Lucas yeah. was wrote that script and produced it, yeah. and so we shot the whole damn thing. And then George Lucas came out yeah, you and said me, we want to do rewrites. Right. You told me the story the last time you were last time you were on my other podcast. Amazing about horror. how you about how you went off on George Lucas. <laughs> oh yes, Lucas, I'm not, I won't do that. This... No, I, if people could go back and check it out, it's on it's on the Nick D podcast, my other podcast. Please, it's yes, it's one of my favorite stories that you've ever told, Stephen. It's one the of the most fa- horrible it's... rant ever. Oh my yes. god, it's the best. Um, all right, uh, David Keckner, who you just worked with. I just worked with David Keckner. Now he's one of these guys. Now I've worked with David now on the same project for the last year, which I can't really talk about the project yet. But uh, <laughs> Dave just arrived. We, we were shooting this in Portland, and Dave just arrived at the airport, came back in, met me at the hotel, and said, so, dude, are we just, like, improvising this thing? And I go, <laughs> no, Dave. We, we got scripts. We have scripts. You have lines. He goes, what? No, man, I don't have no lines. I go, you do, Dave. You have a lot of lines, and they're technical lines. He said, oh, hell, let's just go to the bar. And Dave just made up stuff. We, uh, we went out there, and all he did was make stuff up. And the and because he's Dave, Dave yeah. Keckner, the director and producers were laughing so hard at the stuff he added. They increased his part of what he had to make up. You know, he would do stuff. This, this you know. We would be having a serious scene. Me and uh, the other person I w- we were performing with, we'd be yeah. having somewhat of a serious scene. And then Dave, over the back of my shoulder, would say <laughs> to, the, uh, to the guy I'm talking to, you have a ride on a scooter? And <laughs> it stops him. He says, I got a scooter. It's electric. It's got a seat for two. <laughs> I'm, I'm like looking back at him. Okay, okay. Okay, Dave. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and it, and then he go like buzz, 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 zzz, 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 zzz. <laughs> Okay, Dave. Dave, you know, stop it. You know, it was hilarious. Uh, so yeah. you know, it, he's he's great, uh, and at improvisation, heaven help us all. Uh, Dan Aykroyd. Now you were in sneakers, but I mean, you're <sighs> made your big scene in sneakers with Mary McDonald. 
was uh, Mary McDonald and Dan was just like the sweetest guy. Yeah. You know, he was just, a, and I, you know, being an actor, you know, I don't want to say, God, I loved all of your impersonations so much. And ag again, you know, you have a Jim Belushi on the show that is the thing that destroys the world. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, John, John Belushi, Belushi. I mean, yeah, John, John yeah. Belushi, who destroys the world with, with Samurai, whatever. And you have Dan Aykroyd that imitates the world. And yeah. what everybody loved about Dan was how accurate his Jimmy Carter was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, he blew people away with his impersonation. So, yeah. oh, he was just, you know, I, I, I just... Yeah. admired him so much yeah and by the way that movie if people have not seen sneakers it's great. really it's it's one of those it's a, it, it's the definition of a sleeper it really is because it's it's a tremendous movie that i don't think i know people who've seen it love it but it's one of those movies that i think doesn't have the reputation it deserves it's a and tremendous movie with a it's great a cast, great a great, great cast. cast yeah and it it is a movie it is the only tech movie that i could think about that was made what twenty years ago or whatever it was. Yeah. That is not outdated. Yeah, no, it's, it's still it's horrifying. Tremendous. It's still and, a scary yeah. movie. And you got to work with Dan Aykroyd on that. Okay, how about Jay Moore? You uh, you've worked with Jay Moore. <sighs> Jay Moore. We worked on Black River together up in Canada. That's where we got to know each other. And then I got to see his stand up, and he. Then I saw he was the funniest man on earth. Mm. Uh, and. He was so happy that I, I came to a stand-up. He was so thrilled and that we talked about it all the time. And then the last time I saw him was when I went to do the Groundhog Day Jeep commercial with Bill Murray oh, right. in, in Woodstock. Right. So I get on the plane and Jay Moore is sitting across from me. <laughs> and he's got and he and he's got his earphone in and he's saying, Kobe just died. Mm. Kobe Bryant. So the day we flew back oh, was the day Kobe Bryant died oh, wow. in the airplane cra in the crash. Oh man! Oh, there's a memory. There's a weird memory for you yeah. right there, Jay Moore. But Jay Moore, great stand-up comic and yeah. wonderful actor. Yeah, fun to work with too. Uh, all right, Sherry O'Terry, who is one of my favorites. Uh, of Sherry, oh, we did the weirdest project in the world. I think the title of it now is Love Virtually or Virtually Love. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. It was a movie that was done right at the height of COVID. So COVID restrictions are full. We're shooting in the valley. Everybody's wearing masks. But the entire crew, the writer, the director, are serious Orthodox Jews. <laughs> Everybody's an Orthodox Jew. So the food we have to have is kosher. You have to take uh, Shabbat on Friday night and Saturday, so nothing. So we work on Sunday. And the I don't know if this is true through all of, of Orthodox Judaism, but there's a thing in Orthodox Judaism about getting stoned. That pot is one of the things that is good to do. Oh, really? And you, and yes, that they're very big on pot. Wow. So like, wow. Okay. We would start shooting. <laughs> Sherry and I, we would start shooting these scenes. We were together in the same room. We were playing husband and wife. We were together in the same room in this house. And about noon, the director and the crew would start token on some uh, high Jamaican. I'm saying like, you could smell this stuff. It's like so. And then as the day progressed, the work we were able to achieve became less and less. And, uh, yeah, you know, they would say, okay, Steven, let's just try to, hmm, what was I talking about? We, let's try to do this again. But, uh, you know, you know how uh, 
You know, you're sitting there at the table and you're looking at Cherry and, uh, well, let's just do it again. Let's see what comes out, you know? And I'm going like, oh my God. So you have to get, you have to get everything done between yeah. like 10 and one, because after one o'clock, it yeah. is the pot heavy sets in. Yeah. shake and bake time. <laughs> But Sherry was nice to work with. Uh, oh under God, the, under those great. circumstances, we, yeah. She's looking. Yeah, we we had a great time because both of us were going like, "What the hell did we yeah. get ourselves in for?" But yeah. but you know, I think it's out now. I think you could get it on YouTube or something. I think okay. it's out now. All right. Love and virtually then, or something. Love virtually. Okay, Tim Meadows, another one of those guys. Uh, in my opinion, <sighs> one of the most solid and dependable cast members in the SNL in SNL history. The guy can do anything. He's such a joy to have on the Goldbergs. So I've worked with Tim now for years on the Goldbergs. He's he's very much like Wendy, is that he's a guy who comes ready to play. He's he's a great leader. He's, he's a lot of fun to be with uh, on the set. Now, what I did not know about Tim is that he collects drumroll tennis shoes. Oh, he does? I have no idea, but when he goes on his trips to different places around, and I think now he's relocated to Detroit. Mm -hmm. I believe when last I saw Tim, he, he bought a house in Detroit because he loves the sports and he wants to be, you know, he wants to watch the Detroit Tigers. He has uh, okay. seats on the front row and he wants to watch the Lions. You know why he's glommed on to Detroit sport teams, that's up to him. And his God, yeah. but that's, that's what he's got. <laughs> but, but he was talking about all the different shoes that he collects and he gets, and he doesn't wear them. You know, he buys the shoes, sure. you know, and then he, he has a display, you, you know, where he keeps all of these first edition Air Jordans and all, all these things, yeah. tennis shoes he gets from all over the world. So Tim is a tennis shoe collector. Now, Tim Meadows, tennis shoe collector. Yeah. All right. Who knew? Another Tim, Tim Kazarinski, uh, who anybody in this city, uh, Tim's Tim's a local a local legend here. Uh, and it, you were you worked with Tim. It's it's like I was in grad school with Beth, Beth Henley, and our friend in grad school, the one person we know who was a senior at U of I at the time was Bob Falls, who later became the head of the Goodman yeah. Theater in Chicago. Yeah. He was uh, the head of uh, one of the big directors at Wisdom Bridge Theater yeah. at that time. And yeah. so he invited Beth and I to come out and see him. And he said, we have to come see Second City because we have to, you have to see Tim Kesarinski. He is the funniest man on earth. And Jim Belushi was in that Second City cast as well, as I recall. Yeah. So that was the first time I saw Jim, and Tim was the funniest man on earth. Yeah. Funniest man on earth. Amazing comic talent. Well, and uh, another local talent uh, who has the distinction of only being on one episode of SNL, technically, uh, and that's Lori Metcalf, who uh, obviously Lori Metcalf. No, from Ro Roseanne and and uh, and everything, but she was a, she was a cast member for a millisecond on SNL. Yeah, went to school with her at the U of I. Yeah. Lori was one of the girls who went to school, along with Alan Ruck, yep. who's now big star at Succession. And we met all these people at the U of I and have kind of kept in touch with them over the years because they're so damn good. But Lori is a great, great actress and saw her in uh, Balm and Gilead on Broad oh, man. Uh, off Broadway. Oh, my God, was she great. Yeah. She was so good in that. Yeah. Oh. And then now we can we can close here with uh, 
you know, Groundhog Day. We've heard uh, over the years, you've told so many wonderful stories about working with that, uh, with him. And Bill Murray is one of the legends in the history of SNL, obviously. And, um, and just to remind everybody, working with Bill Murray was, uh, was, was interesting and fun and weird, right? On, on well, Day? I, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people saying how difficult it is working with Bill, and I didn't find that at all. I mean, maybe I was lucky, but I thought, I thought, he was like one of the best actors I've ever worked with in my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not saying that to blow any kind of smoke, but when you're working on film with an actor, you want him in the moment and every take should be in the moment and it shouldn't be about repeating what you did last time or whatever. And Bill was always looking right into my eyes and he was every take was different. Every take he gave 100%. Every take was fresh. Yeah. Uh, and And... The thing that was so amazingly touching is when I went back for that commercial, I don't know if I said this on your last show, when I went back for that commercial, the Jeep commercial for the Super Bowl, right? Uh, went back to the hotel and there was Bill. And uh, Bill said, can we talk a second? I said, sure, Bill. He says, I heard that you have a lot of stories about Groundhog Day. And I, I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He says, what happened the first day? Because I don't remember the first day. <laughs> I said, grab a chair. And we sat down and, and I had a beer at, at the little, I had a beer and we sat, we talked for about an hour and a half. Yeah. And I told him all the amazing, wondrous things Bill Murray did that <laughs> first day of Groundhog's Day. And he goes, really? That was me? I go, that was yeah. you, Bill. Amazing. Uh, amazing. Yeah, amazing amazing actor great actor I, I think underestimated as an actor yeah i agree i agree well listen uh it's always great to to you know steven you're so loaded with so many amazing uh, stories tell everybody how uh they can find you online you've got what other what other, what other things are coming up i you know you can't talk about some of the stuff that you've been shooting but you've been incredibly busy in and out of the country and different states and filming you're working now I, more than you've ever worked my god well i don't know more than i ever worked but i'm working more now than a lot of people in COVID times are working it's crazy yeah. i yeah. i did i did uh Last year, I did a Hallmark Christmas movie called Haul Out the Holly, right, right. which turned yeah. out to be one of Hallmark's biggest hits. I loved it, man. I, and so uh, yeah, we just it. finished Haul Out the Holly Part 2. Awesome. In Utah, <laughs> which is fabulous. Same cast, same location, same everything. Hilarious, beautiful script. Uh, terrific script. Uh, and it, it carries the story a step further. Okay. With, with all the same absolute ridiculousness of it. So that'll be, I, I think they're going to show Haul Out the Holly Part 1 soon in yeah. July. I July think for Christmas yeah. in July, Hallmark is going to show Haul Out the Holly Part 1 again. And then over the Thanksgiving weekend, probably, you could catch Haul Out the Holly Part 2. So we just finished that. It's Great. We wrapped picture yesterday. Wow. Yesterday was lock picture, and I'm waiting for the director to call me up to see if I have to go in and do looping. Yeah. So it's it's a it's it's a very fun show. People well, love it. Um, uh, you know, uh, I thank you so much for for being a part of this. I knew that like we'd have great stories about you working with all these SNL people. I didn't know that you would work with you had worked with over 24 of them. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Uh, but I'm not surprised by it. And thank you for your insight on how you felt, you know, in your 20s watching this revolutionary show pop on the air for the first time. It was an atom bomb.
Yeah, it really was. Steven, it's uh, it's always a pleasure. And we'll get you back on my Nick D podcast, too. You uh, got it, man. Uh, at and some point. And, uh, and I love you, Congratulations know on this one. I, I love this this podcast. The Thanks, SNL man. is great. I appreciate it. So uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, and uh, Stephen Toblowski, everybody. And that wraps up another episode of That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years. I want to thank you for listening and subscribing. Please make sure that you check out my other podcast, The Nick D Podcast, which is an entertainment, pop culture, and review podcast that drops every Tuesday and Friday right here at RadioMisfits.com. Please subscribe to that. Take the time to rate and review us and give us feedback on all the podcasts here. By the way, Radio Misfits is now live streaming. There's a 24-hour streaming network that you can listen to all the time with great music and great podcasts. You can hear this podcast at RadioMisfits.live every morning at 9 a.m. Central, and you can hear my other podcast, the Nick T Podcast, every afternoon at 3 p.m. Central, all on the 24-hour service of uh, radiomisfits.live. And again, check us all out. Give us uh, feedback, rate and review us. We want to hear back from you. 773-417-6945 for any of your comments or questions or suggestions or SNL uh, topics that you would like to hear discussed or guests that you would like to have on the uh, on the podcast. Or you can send me an email anytime you want. NickDPodcast at gmail.com will reach both of my emails. I read every email that I get. I listen to every voicemail that I get and I play many of them back on the podcast. So 773-417-6948 for voicemail, email nickdpodcast at gmail.com. My thanks to you for listening. My thanks to Ed at Radio Misfits, the best podcast network in the world. And my thanks to Stephen Tobolowski for being such an incredible guest as always. And uh, please check us out again, subscribe and uh, give us your feedback. And I want to thank uh, Jason Skaggs, who is the incredible, incredibly talented, wonderful sound guy that I've known for many years who does all the music and the themes and the songs and the weirdness and the audio for both of my podcasts. He did the great opening theme for this podcast and this fantastic closing theme of That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. We'll be back again next Wednesday for a brand new episode. And again, tune in every day at 9 a.m. to hear this podcast every episode on RadioMisfits.live. So thank you, Jason. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Stephen Tobolowski. And thank you. We'll see you next time. And that show hasn't been funny in years in SNL Podcast. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs>